The Gong Show won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about The, the French, French Connection. French Connection. Yeah. French dressing. French bread. French fries. French fries. Yeah, the oh. French, French connection. <laughs> oh, baby. What a great way. It's our Gene Hack Month. Oh, so excited about Gene Hack Month. Celebrating one of our absolute favorite actors of all time, Gene Hackman. Oh, he's so good. And we wanted to start with his first real starring role as Popeye Doyle. Yeah, Popeye Doyle and the French Connection. I love this movie so oh, much. Oh, yeah. When he eats that spinach and he gets all, like, strong and beats up Bluto. Yeah, it's that's cool. crazy. But I didn't know Bluto was French. Yeah, it's Weird. sad that they, within 10 years, remade it uh, with uh, Robin Williams. Yeah. Doesn't really make any sense. Wasn't as good. No. No, no definitely Hackman was a better Popeye <laughs> yes. Doyle. Popeye. He was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I is super excited watching it. I did not really... It is timeless. Although, yeah. granted, obviously, it's very 1970s. Mm-hmm. But, but the storytelling and it, so many movies have aped this style oh. since then. Well, we were talking about it. I think this was the first American cinema verite, yeah. which, uh, yeah. you know, we'll talk about how he came from documentary yeah. filmmaking. Yeah, so, which certainly helps, yeah. And it was such a brilliant choice. Nothing lends itself more to this kind of filmmaking than, right. like, a pr- police procedural. This movie moves, man. Yeah. And it doesn't move like an action movie or whatever, but the story, it's smart it doesn't hold the audience's hand. No, no. The story's unfolding here and in France, and yeah, it comes you, together. you got to really pay attention to this movie to understand what's going on. It does not give you anything. you got to work for all of it, yeah. and it's awesome. And it's not p- very PC in terms of the time. No, no. You know, but that's just, not. that was because it was based on real people, a real situation. Yep. You know, it was gritty, it was real, and it was... Amazing. Yeah, it was definitely a product of its time. <laughs> yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah, well, and again, like you said, it yeah completely started a, a whole new oh, yeah. way of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, there's so many people, so many movies you would not know if it wasn't for Friedkin and The French Connection. Carbuncle shot like yeah. that. Yeah, you know the movie that T. Arthur Conan and I did. Yeah. Over five years. This was a, it was actually a really good blueprint for how to shoot a movie very quickly with mm-hmm. not a lot of money. Right. And and make it good. Yeah. Yeah. It was the it was the one of the first kind of studio guerrilla yeah. Yeah. down and dirty filmmaking experiences. They didn't have permits. They didn't have any. No. no. Whew. The fact that they got away with what they did is amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> well, let's get into it. Take yourself back to 1971. Yeah. May 1st, anti-war militants attempt to disrupt government business in Washington, D.C. Police and military units arrest as many as 12,000 people, most of whom are later released. Oh, man. <sighs> Protests back then... They did not coddle protesters. They no, would bring in the National no. Guard and the Army, and they would beat them senseless and arrest them all. It was so brave yeah. to be a protester back then. I mean, yeah. you were literally putting your life on the line. This was just before they started bringing in scoops to scoop up the protesters. You get the scoops! They're bringing in the scoops! Here come the scoops! <laughs> <laughs> Watch our Soylent Green episode, episode for that yeah. reference. Uh, August 20th, Camden, New Jersey erupts in race riots with looting and arson following the beating death of a Puerto Rican motorist by city police. Damn. 
Yeah. I'm glad so much has changed, and, and nothing like that ever happens. <laughs> uh, September 9th, uh, a revolt breaks out at the maximum security prison in Attica, New York. It lasts for four days, and in the end, state police and the United States National Guard storm the facility. 42 are killed, 10 of them being hostages. Attica! Yeah. Attica! Uh, October 7th, The French Connection is released in theaters. Yeah. A, a nice, relaxing movie to calm everybody <laughs> the F down. Man, I... That, the music in that movie is so tense. Charring? It is not, like, it. it the soundtrack is the most anxiety-inducing. Yeah. Just from the beginning where it's like, it's like I, this crazy acid I know, jazz. I know, I love it. It's great. And it it's great. completely adds to the anxiety that you feel throughout this entire film. Uh, I don't know if anxiety is the right word, but you know what I mean. It's just so tense. Yeah, the, the intensity, yeah. And the and the music just kind of pops in. It's very used very sparingly. Yeah, not very much of it in the movie. You don't need it. So the movie starts with the 1969 novel The French Connection, a true account of cops, narcotics, and international conspiracy by Robin Moore. Nice. James Bond. Yeah. Uh, Robin Moore served as a nose gunner during World War II, winning the Air Medal Award. Upon return, he attended Harvard, worked in TV production, and worked for a while with the Sheraton Hotel Company, which his father co-founded. Good Lord, man. Being a gunner on a ship, I mean, on a plane. On a plane, yeah. Especially the, the undergunner. They had a very high mortality rate. Well, you're also, there's no hatch. No, getting up no. into the plane, you get no. in from underneath yeah. the plane and are kind of bolted in. You're stuck in there until and you're you there land. until either yeah. you get blown up yeah. or you land. Ah, it's so claustrophobic. Yeah, no, thank you. No, no, can't do Heroes. it. Heroes. It's funny because I was like, oh, Robin Moore. His father was rich, and he's just this rich kid that was able to do all this stuff. But he literally was a gunner, a nose <laughs> yeah. gunner in World War II, and then later, you know, essentially becomes a special forces soldier. But his dad did own the Sheraton Hotel Company, so take that for what it's worth. Uh, while working in the hotel business in the Caribbean, he recorded the early days of Fidel Castro in the nonfiction book The Devil to Pay. Due to connections with Harvard classmate Robert F. Kennedy, Moore was allowed access to the U.S. Army Special Forces to write about this elite unit of the United States Army. Era, era, Yoshikawa. Right about the army. Ah, so not only was his dad the founder, co-founder of the Sheraton Hotel Company, he was friends with Robert F. Kennedy. Yeah, uh, yeah my friend. And uh, you can do whatever you want. Uh, there are some people that just were born to be successful. Yes. Uh, well, it's uh, the yeah. Forrest Gumping of a life where you just kind of get those. But look, it's what you do with the opportunities I, that counts. Exactly. That's what I was going to say, is that at least he was like, hey, I'm going to go do this stuff that can right. help change the world rather Inst than yes. just spend money and be annoying. Instead of like, I don't know, buying a bunch of companies and saying you invented a bunch of stuff <laughs> with your dad's apartheid money. <laughs> yeah, you actually yeah. did something with yeah. your life. Yeah, interesting. interesting. <laughs> General William P. Yarborough insisted that Moore go through special forces training to better understand what makes special forces soldiers special. Nice. He trained for nearly a year, first at jump school for airborne training before completing the Special Forces Qualification Course, also known as the Q Course, becoming the first civilian to participate in such an intensive program. That's crazy. And it's also crazy that he made it through it. Exactly. Because it's like, it, wow, you could have done this. <laughs> well, But it also just, you know, because not, it is, they're special. Yeah. And it's not an easy course. They have extremely high standards. Oh, yeah. Uh, afterwards, Moore was assigned to the 5th Special Forces Group on deployment to South Vietnam. <laughs> His experiences in-country formed the basis for the 1966 novel The Green Berets, a bestseller that helped secure him international acclaim. The Green Berets. Uh, Moore co-authored the lyrics for The Ballad of the Green Berets, which was one of the major hit songs of 1966. Oh, the Green, the green Berets. Boom. Boom. Yeah. Boom. 
Well, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's really catchy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a hit today too. I think uh, Green Day did a cover of it on one of their albums. The Ballad of the Green Days, Green yeah. Beret Days, Green Beret Days. Yeah, the song was featured in the 1968 film The Green Berets, based on Moore's book, which starred and was co-directed by John Wayne. It is. It has the distinction of being the only pro-Vietnam movie ever made. <laughs> Seriously, and it was uh, made before, like oh, John Wayne. Yeah, really. I was. Trying to get a head of the whole hullabaloo. I figured if I made a movie in 66, we could get all the patriots on board. But unfortunately, it was an awful war. John Wayne. Yeah. The Conqueror. You should check it out. <laughs> Don't check it out. <laughs> Unless you want to see the movie that m- murdered a bunch of people with cancer. <laughs> The French Connection novel is based on the true life French Connection, a scheme through which heroin was smuggled from Indochina through Turkey to France and then to the United States and Canada, sometimes through Cuba. Lord. Moving. Moving that that heroin. (laughs) Gee, they're just like, oh, no, we're just going to throw it on a plane and take it straight there. I mean, it had to be, you know. Sifted. I, that's one of the greatest scenes in this movie was when they were tearing apart the car. Oh, yeah. And it was like, it's not there, man. It, that scene went on and on and yeah. on. It's like, it's not there. Well, because they wanted to show how absolutely frustrating it was. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And, and thank goodness for Smarty Smart's old Roy Scheider. Yeah, Looking exactly. at, the, at the weight the, differential. The, yeah, and the weight differential and getting the oh, baseball. God, I love him so much, Roy Scheider. So, you know who else is a great man? Gene Hackman? Yes. Yes. Uh, so the operation started in the 1930s, reached its peak in the 60s, and was finally dismantled in the 70s. Wow, that's a long time. It went for quite a while. It was responsible for providing the vast majority of the heroin used in the United States at the time. Party! Yeah. Uh, kind of like the one guy in the late 60s here in California who provided like 98% of all the LSD in the, in the world. Well, yeah, but that's a little bit different. I know, I know. Because you, you, you can make that. Yeah, and I know. then you know, but literally, it was one guy. Uh, anyway, well, it's tough to make acid. He knew, he knew when he was doing it. That'd be yeah. a neat recipe. I'd like to see that TikTok <laughs> video. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Uh, producer Philip D'Antoni bought the film rights to Robin Moore's book. D'Antoni started his career in TV, producing specials Sophia Loren in Rome, Ooh. Elizabeth Taylor in London. And Melina Mercori in Greece. I see a little bit of a yeah, see, pattern there. See that pattern? Yeah. Beautiful women in different places. Uh, they were all TV specials doing things, singing, I guess. No. I, no, because Sophia think so. Loren was not a singer. Neither was Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, no, you're right. I don't know. It was probably just, just them being pretty. around doing stuff. Look, hey, look, I'm in London. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1968, he produced Bullet, the neo-noir cop thriller starring Steve McQueen. Oh, uh, such a great... Great movie. I have not seen that movie in a long time. I need to see it again. I just watched uh, it like a year or two ago. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Ah, hold, oh, God, man. Steve McQueen uh, was just one of the most charming, yeah. amazing actors. Just so low-key so and good. just so awesome. Uh, Bullet has one of the most famous car chases in film history. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was one of the first to do the like, full-on car chase. And that, there's like half of the movie is that car yeah, chase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. D'Antoni brought the film to National General Pictures, a company that owned movie theaters as well as foraying into producing them, but they eventually dropped the film. D'Antoni originally approached Michael Winner to direct the film. Because he's a winner! He, he was. He would go on to eventually direct Death Wish and two of its sequels. Yeah, Pally. Uh, the first one was really good. Yes, they, it was. They went a little downhill after They that. killed my daughter and my wife, Pally. So I shut them all. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Winner turned down the project for The French Connection. 
Uh, D'Antoni turned to William Friedkin, who had directed for TV, including one of the last episodes of Hel- Alfred Hitchcock Presents in 1965. He'd always be like, get freaking Friedkin, man! <laughs> uh, Hitchcock actually chastised him for not directing in a tie. All right. <laughs> you don't have ties. You can't work. Well, you have a lot of gravy on your tie, pal. Well, he, wow. All right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he wasn't fat. He was just big boned. Really? Yeah. It was Hitchcock, his whole thing, because Sam Raimi does the same thing, but his whole thing was that was how people knew he was the director, because okay. he was the one in a tie. Okay. Well, I, maybe William Friedkin wore a feather in his ass. You can and... see how well that kept going, because literally almost no one does it now. Right. Well, also, you're Alfred freaking Hitchcock, man. <laughs> Nobody's going to mistake you for a PA. <laughs> well, no, that's true. That is true. Yeah, could you give me some coffee, Chubbs? <laughs> oh, wow. I'm the director. <laughs> Uh, by 1970, Friedkin had only directed a handful of fiction pictures. His first feature was in 1965, called Good Times, starring Sonny and Cher. Uh, Friedkin claims the movie is entirely unwatchable. God, I don't know. I used to love Sonny and Cher, but yeah, man, no thanks. No, absolutely not. I could not do it. In 1968, he directed two films, The Birthday Party, starring Robert Shaw, written by Harold Pinter, adapted from his play. It is not a happy birthday party. <laughs> Just going in, you should know that. <laughs> he also directed The Night They Rated Minsky's, a musical comedy written and produced by Norman Lear. That's good, actually. That's really good. Yeah. Norman Lear is a genius. Absolute oh, yeah. genius. And in 1970, he directed The Boys in the Band, one of the first films to focus on gay characters and is reportedly the first use of the word cunt in a feature film. Yikes. Uh, spoiler alert. That's a bad word. Um, it was really risky of him to direct yeah. that movie. Yeah. Anything... Anything quote-unquote gay back then could ruin your career. So Freakin also directed a number of documentaries. In 1962, he directed The People vs. Paul Crump for Chicago Television. Uh, The doc was highly praised and led to Freakin working with documentary producer David Wolper, as well as getting Freakin the Alfred Hitchcock Presents job. Nice. Wolper was nominated for an Academy Award for his 1959 documentary, The Race for Space. The Race for Space. Uh, Friedkin would direct three docs for Wolper, two in 1965, uh, The Bold Men, about men who are courageous enough to risk their lives undertaking challenges, sports-related and not, that are at the limit of human capabilities. Macho! Macho, macho film. Uh, and also one called Mayhem on a Sunday Afternoon about pro football. Yeah, baby! Macho! <laughs> macho man. And The Thin Blue Line in 1966, focusing on the police force, which had an influence on how Friedkin made the French connection. Not to be confused with Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line, no. which is one of the greatest documentaries yes. ever made. yes. While he was filming The Boys in the Band in 1970, Friedkin began a relationship with Kitty Hawks, director of, daughter of director Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks would be an influence on Friedkin's decision to direct The French Connection. Friedkin asked Hawks what he thought of his movies, to which Hawks bluntly replied that they were... Lousy! (laughs) Ouch. Instead, Hawks recommended that he... Make a good chase. Make one better than anyone else has done. Friedkin would also be influenced by the 1969 movie Z, directed by Costa Gravas, which won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. Uh, Z was shot in a documentary style. Yeah. Freakin said, After I saw Z, I realized how I could shoot the French Connection. Because he shot Z like a documentary. It was a fiction film, but it was made like it was actually happening. Like the camera didn't know what was going to happen next. And that is an induced technique. It looks like he happened upon the scene and captured what was going on as you would do in a documentary. My first films were documentaries, too. So I understood what he was doing, but I never thought you could do that in a feature at the time. Until I saw Z. Influence. Huge influence. Yep. 
Uh, Friedkin would take this aesthetic to the extreme. Extreme! He didn't storyboard anything for The French Connection. That is insane. That is insane, especially since you're doing guerrilla-style filmmaking. I, yes. <sighs> he and the cinematographer would show up at their shoot location and loosely plan out shots. They wouldn't then explain the setups to the camera operator and told him to... Just keep up! <laughs> Which is, okay. that poor camera operator's like, you know this uh, camera's 55 pounds, right? <laughs> sure. Uh, Fox execs were reluctant to hire Friedkin as he had very little experience with this type of movie, but D'Antoni preferred, uh, but D'Antoni pointed to Peter Yates, who directed Bullet, who had no prior experience shooting that type of movie, and turned it into a blockbuster. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, my dad worked on this, and, and when they said that, he said, well, just get Yates. No brainer, right? Yeah. And, and then and he forgot to pick me up at camp for like three <laughs> weeks. I'm sad. So you don't you don't know how that turned out, did you? No. All I know is they made the movie. Oh yeah. They yeah. didn't. My dad left. He, <laughs> it wasn't racist did enough. Did he go out to go get some cigarettes? Yeah. You know. Yeah. He he, a lot of back. times. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he came back once because he forgot his briefcase. <laughs> Anyway. All right. Well, thanks for stopping by. Oh, man. My kids. Have you seen them? I'm pretty sure they're in your hot car oh, that yeah. has all the windows rolled up. Well, the windows don't go down. They're bulletproof. Oh. oh. God, you must be because people want to murder you. All the time. All the Every time. Every day. Yep. Every day. All right. Well, thanks. Goodbye. <laughs> After the deal with National General Pictures fell through, Friedkin was offhandedly told by Fox executive Daryl F. Zanuck that they had an extra $2 million he could use to make the movie if he could make it for that. Sweet. <laughs> like, okay, just, cool. Just like, we're hey, just around. hey, man, we're just having a drink. I got $2 million. You want to yeah. make a movie? We went through all the couch cushions in the green rooms and found $2 million. Uh, Zanuck also warned Friedkin that if done badly, he'd end up with another episode of the TV series Naked City, a New York City set cop show from the late 50s. Friedkin said later this ins- inspired him to make the Popeye Dole character a combination of good and evil because that duality was not something one saw on Naked City. No. Everything back then was very reverential to cops. Black and white, Marty, yeah. Marty guys? Marty guys. Army guys. Like, the, anything in authority was still reverential. There was yeah. very few, like, conspiracy or yeah. anti-government or anti-establishment stuff right. going on. Right, right. The first draft of the screenplay was written by Alexander Jacobs, who had penned Point Blank in 1967, starring Lee Marvin, directed by John Borman. Yeah. Uh, this was dismissed by William, William Friedkin and Philip D'Antoni. They literally just did away with his first draft entirely. No, thanks. Uh, the second draft was by Robert E. Thompson, who had been Oscar nominated for They Shoot Horses, Don't They? in 1969, starring Jane Fonda and directed by Sidney Pollack. We need to do that movie because we talk about it so much. We do. I randomly watched that movie because I thought the title was so odd. Yeah. And then was even more weirded out by the fact that it was about a dance competition. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it doesn't make any <laughs> it's sense. It's a great movie. Though. It is, but it's, it's a really so weird movie. Uh, yet again, though, the Robert E. Thompson draft did not meet with the approval of the film's producer or director. Uh, bear in mind that Freakin detested the source material of the novel, calling it thick-headed and refusing to read it. Okay. What? <laughs> and why are you doing this? He wanted to do... He, he, he knew how he was going to shoot it. He didn't give a shit what the story was. Well, you know, okay. But still, it's like the Witcher people, you know? I know. Why do you I hire know. people that yeah, hate don't. the source material? Yeah, when fans are so nuts. passionate... Well, I'm sure there weren't a bunch of passionate French no. Connection novel fans... They were like, ooh, goo, it's, it's, it's not like the novel. 
Uh, then D'Antoni came across the galleys to a novel called Shaft by a writer called Ernest Tidyman. Shut your mouth. That they both liked, <laughs> so they hired Tidyman to write a new screenplay. D'Antoni and Friedkin had major input in the finished screenplay. Tidyman was the son of a crime reporter for the Plains Dealer in Cleveland. Tidyman would write seven Shaft novels along with the screenplay for the first film. Nice. Uh, due to the success of the film's Shaft and the French Connection, Tidyman became a hot ticket in Hollywood. Yeah. He wasn't happy with how Shaft ended up, so he created his own production company. He wrote the screenplay for the Shaft sequel in 1972, as well as the screenplay for High Plains Drifter in 73, directed and starring Clint Eastwood. Great movie. Fantastic movie. Uh, in 1979, he co-wrote A Force of One, one of Chuck Norris's early films. Yeah, one of my films. It was one of the films that wasn't really following what um, Sylvester Stallone did. It was kind of my own thing for the first time. It was, uh, did he have some input? Did you have some input, sorry, on uh, the title? No, I just had input on kicks and punches. <laughs> well, you are a force of one. I'm a force of one. <laughs> in 1980. Oh, be Beware of my beard. It might punch you in the face. <laughs> in 1980, he would write the teleplay and produce Guiana Tragedy, the story of Jim Jones, which earned him an Emmy nomination. I write for money. Tidyman said in a 1980 interview, he got up at 6 a.m. and wrote for 12 hours a day. Damn. Apparently, he was also drinking heavily during those 12 hours a day. Yeah, well, most of them were. Uh, he'd be married five times, and in 1984, his alcoholism would get the better of him, finally killing him at the age of 56. Damn, that is serious alcoholism. That is some serious drinking. Because we know, like, a lot of these old Brits, these old, you know, oh, yeah. the the super alcoholics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they live to be like 70s and 80s. Some in their Some, 90s even. Yeah. Like it's, it's and if man, to, to, for your body to shut down from alcoholism at 56, 12 hours a day. Well, I think too, like if you're an actor alcoholic, you're still moving around and doing That's stuff. That's true. And there's, that is true. There's times That's that you point. have to do stuff and people are feeding you and you have to kind of. Yeah. Be people are feeding what? you. <laughs> you know? it's like, Please, Mr. Shaw, <laughs> just eat the burger. I eat eat the burger. Uh, give me more gin. <laughs> I, um, I put some whiskey in it. Just eat the burger. <laughs> uh, but as a writer, you're just sitting there. You're very sedentary. I used to drink and write. And, oh, and, bad news. Uh, you don't realize how drunk you are until you stand up. He was probably, yes, he was probably smoking, too, uh, at the time. So I used I, to do, yeah. That was the thing. Drinking, smoking, the, and writing. That is the writing cliche, man. It is. Is you got to drink and you got to smoke cigs. And... I thought it worked. I mean, you know, <laughs> I wrote like 80% of the stuff I've written is drinking and smoking. Uh, so they cast Gene Hackman as Detective Jimmy Popeye Doyle. Gene Hackman. Uh, Popeye was the real nickname of Detective Eddie Egan due to his eyes always bugging out and how he would flex after chasing down a suspect. And he would go, Eddie Egan also has a ginormous head. Yes, it is a giant Head. I, it is shocking how big his head is. It's like an Easter Island head. Half of the uh, New York budget, police force budget, went to buying him hats. Yes, and things to keep his neck from collapsing. <laughs> the weight of that head. A number of people were considered for Popeye Doyle. Friedkin considered Paul Newman and Steve McQueen, but with the small budget, they were out of the movie's price range. Both great, but no. No. Yeah. I, neither of them have enough of the everyman that I think Gene Exactly. Has. They're yeah. both too pretty. Well, yeah. I... I think more so McQueen could have done it because he's just he's still kind of weird yeah. looking and, and very Yeah, he could have. And Newman could have nailed it acting wise because the guy's one of the greatest actors right. ever. Of course, of course. But his looks are distracting sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Those eyes, man. So you be staring at his eyes the whole time. Goodness. Yeah. Uh Freakin then pushed back on the realism aspect of the film and wanted to cast Jimmy Breslin, <laughs> a New York reporter, to play the part. Jimmy Breslin, man. 
Jimmy Breslin uh, was one of the main reporters on the like uh, uh, David Berkowitz. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was the crime beat reporter in New York, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was in that documentary. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He's a huge celebrity. Yeah, he was one of the first real celebrity journalists. Big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what a bad idea! Because the guy is like he is larger than life, but. He's not an actor. <laughs> no, man. They went through a few weeks of rehearsal until Friedkin realized that Breslin couldn't act and had never learned to drive. Yeah, I don't know how to drive. Yeah, and I'm not going to act. He literally essentially was like, I'm not learning to drive. He told him flat out he's not learning to drive. He's a New Yorker. And he, he was, was in like, his 50s by then. There's a car chase scene. <laughs> not going to be me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't him. Uh, Friedkin then turned to Jackie Gleason. Would have been great. Would have been great. Jackie Gleason's a very underrated, dramatic actor, in my opinion. Yeah. Gleason was willing to do the film, and he was my idea, the character. But Zanuck said, no, I want a Gleason because the real cop was a heavyset Irish guy. And Gleason's fat. (laughs) (laughs) And Gleason's fat. Uh, all right, what does freaking have against fat guys? I don't don't know. Uh, But I agree. Jackie Gleason would have been great. He's just got that, like, talk about the anger. Yeah. Gleason's got that. Just that temper that can pop, you know. You, you saw it on the honeymooners in the comedic way, but like, yeah, and in like uh, the toy wasn't that him in the toy? Mm-hmm. Oof, yeah. Where, but, but I mean, yeah, but that's it, what he said, right? But he was, yeah, like he. We were definitely like that one look from him, and it's like you ass, you ass, you ass, But I agree, I agree. He definitely ha- like he could stare people down, and he could do you know like well, he, he was just an incredible actor. He was I mean, great. the guy was you know a very troubled man, but also just ridiculously underrated when it came to yeah. drama. Even that crappy Tom Hanks movie where he played his dying dad, he was really good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Fox was still reeling from the Jackie Gleason box office bomb, Guijo, in 1962. Yeah, this is a or passion project. Gigot? I think Gijo. it's Gijo. Okay. Or Gijo. Uh, <laughs> they then considered James Caan, Charles no. Bronson, Peter Boyle, Lee Marvin, Robert Mitchum. Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle out of every one of those pers- persons. All those persons? Peter Boyle, out of all of those actors, yeah. I think he would be on par with Hackman. He would be perfect for the part because he's played parts like that before. Yeah. And he's just got that everyman anger gravitas. Like Peter yeah. Boyle, everybody's oh, no, like, totally. oh, young Frankenstein. But it's like, yeah. No, but he's, yes, 100%. Peter Boyle was a force to be reckoned with. Uh, unfortunately, they all turned down the part. Uh, Boyle's decision to not make the film was a reaction to his work in Joe in 1970. This is crazy. Boyle's character was a bigoted man who went on a violent crime spree, but to Boyle's horror, audiences began cheering on his brutal activities rather than being repulsed by and opposed to them. (laughs) People, man. (laughs) (laughs) There's always going to be a percentage of people in this country that are just... Effing a-holes, man. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, he feared a similar reception if he played Popeye Doyle and thus decided to forego the part. Well, it's also because he's such a likable dude. Yeah. You know, there's guys that, like, have that gene that it's – that make them such effective villains because you right. can't help but be drawn to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lee Marvin turned it down because he didn't like cops, despite playing a fair number of them throughout his career. <laughs> I love Lee Marvin so I, much. He's just I like, don't like I don't cops. Uh, Mitchum turned down the role because he hated the story. Well, I honestly, Mitchum, Mitchum and Marvin were too old. Yeah, I, I don't think they would have worked anyway. And there, there needed to be, I, I, I don't know how else to say it, but there needed to be the fluidity, I guess, that Hackman brought to the part yeah, yeah. of movement and the way 
he played the part was like jazz almost. Yeah. You yeah. know, it was yeah. just the, the, and I don't think they had the nuance to do it that way. It would have been old school, hard cop. Just a lot of punching. And, yeah. And, 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 and a lot just of, hey. a, I'm a force and I'm coming. Yeah. Right. And, and it's not, there need to be more subtlety. And, and, and Hackman was so good at that. Well, he just played a cop of the time so well. Yeah. I yeah. mean, because he was playing a real dude. Yeah. Yeah. In front of the real dude. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure. <laughs> real dude who was not a fan of him. Nope. <laughs> uh, Friedkin then turned to Rod Taylor. Uh, Taylor wanted to play the part, and Fox wanted him for it, but Friedkin wanted someone more unknown to fit in with the cinema verite aspect of the film. Irony. Nobody remembers who Rod Taylor is today. I, I, I want to say I've seen him in some stuff. I'm sure you have. I don't know. I couldn't pick him out of the lineup. Nope, nope, no, not at all. Uh, Hackman met with Friedkin and sat down for an interview. Hackman didn't do any screen test read for the part or even audition. When Hackman left, he assumed they'd passed on him for the role. <laughs> I, I literally, I can imagine they sat down and just talked for a while. Yeah, he's just like, this guy's perfect. Yeah. Up to this point, Hackman had been in a ton of movies, but never as a lead. He had been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for his part in Bonnie and Clyde in 1968. <sighs> Such a great movie. Such a great part. Such Oh, so good. Uh, and again, he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor in uh, I Never Sang for My Father in 1971. And he didn't. He did not, because his father died. He used to hum for his father. He would hum. <laughs> he played the pan flute for his father. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> Just uh, like Zamfir. <laughs> uh, Hackman nearly accepted the role of Mike Brady for the TV series The Brady Bunch. I know. I've known that. That is. Such oh, a really? I did thing. not know that. Yeah. It would have been a very different show. It really wouldn't have. We would have been deprived of a lot of good Gene Hackman. Oh, my movies. God, we would have. But I could totally see Gene Hackman yeah. playing the part of... Yeah, yeah, yes. I, I mean, mean, he's I, so likable. I mean, Gene Hackman can play anything, so I'm but, I'm... but to see Gene Hackman in such a vanilla role, it would have been, it would have been so weird. It would have been weird. Uh, his agent advised that he decline it in exchange for a more promising role, which he did. Uh, Friedkin almost went with Taylor, but opted for Hackman at the last minute. Good. Uh, Eddie Egan, the cop Popeye was based on, was against Hackman's ca- casting as Hackman wasn't from New York. He's not from New York. He doesn't have that New York sensibility. <laughs> Plus, he's too skinny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, not racist enough to play me. <laughs> that I believe. <laughs> uh, Hackman was born in California, but moved around frequently as a child, finally settled, settling in Danville, Illinois. It's like basically New York. Yeah. It's the New York of Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Danville, you know. Yeah, and from Danville. Hey. Danville. Uh, from the lower south side of Danville. You yeah. better watch out. Uh, Hackman had a hard time saying Doyle's racist language without cringing. Uh, Friedkin admitted that the blatant racism was directly inspired by the real Doyle, retired officer Eddie Egan, but he also called Egan a great cop, and a lot of this was an act. A lot of what Egan did was bravado in order to seize control and make sure that all these suspects, most of them dealers and often users of heavy drugs, would do what he told them to do. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, but Hackman gets it. Like, he, he gets... I agree with it. admits it. Yeah. But you it's know. like, yeah. I mean... It was... You can see what policing was like. The bar scene yeah. in French Connection. Yeah. That's what policing was like. It was harassing people. Yeah. Throwing them up I, against the wall, <laughs> taking their drugs, but also like, but yeah. also not arresting all of them. No, just basically just effing with them, seizing stuff from them, and then yeah. humiliating them, and then making that. You know, it wasn't. We'll be back in an hour. Yeah, <laughs> it was a it was a game. Yeah. back then because there's nothing you could really do. Even Egan playing the the uh, Egan playing the police the captain, captain yep. was saying, "You're just busting, you know, guys for five joints in their socks. It's yeah, just pointless. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're not yeah. getting the big dealers. This is yeah. just dumb. And it's true. It's like going after these low-level guys. Yeah, what's it going to do? It doesn't take the drugs no. off the streets. No. 
It just, you know, it's you're just, just keeping some people from having a good time. Well, <laughs> thanks, Adam. Uh, <laughs> you're absolutely right about that. But you're also, you know, just delaying the inevitable because yeah. these guys are going to get out. Well, in, in well a yeah. Day. And, and then they'll get more drugs. I mean, right. they're not, they're the buyers. They're not the sellers. Exactly. Like, it's not, you know. You got to go after the source. You got to start at the top. <sighs> a French connection. Work your way down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the opening scene in which Popeye Dole dresses Santa Claus tackles a drug dealer had to be filmed 27 times. That's the thing. I was watching this movie. Gene Ackman runs so much in this movie. So much. And uh, Roy Scheider as well. Yeah, yeah. But it's just, if 27 times, man. That's crazy. I, I don't know why it took that many times. Well, it sounds like it didn't, but Friedkin was using it as a yeah. tool to upset Gene Hackman. Well, yeah. he was. Hackman was so pissed at having to do it so many times that he threatened to walk off the film. I hate working with directors like that. Yeah. And I have. Yeah. That yeah. I, I'm not dumb. I mean, I, I'm, I'm dumb. But I'm not dumb, <laughs> and I can see through. Right, your, your I'm ruse. usually smarter yeah. than these guys, yeah. and I can see through your little ruse of trying to make me upset. So I'm more pissed at you trying to play a stupid game on me instead right. of just giving me direction right. and trusting me as an actor right. to use the tools in the toolkit. Now we're gonna do a mirror exercise. Oh Jim. God, please! <laughs> oh Meisner, knees to knees, knees to knees. Oh God, oh. you gotta look me in the eyes. Look me in the no, eyes. Never. Um. Yeah. Uh. That. That bothers me, but he got what he wanted, and yeah. I get it, but it's like, it's yeah. just such a waste of everybody's time. I know. And I it know. just means that you can't communicate. Right. If you can't get right. what you want through traditional means, then right. come on, man. That's on you. That's not yeah, on Yeah, it's not on yeah. Hackman, just because Hackman didn't like being a racist. He did it. Yeah. I, he was so remarkable in this movie. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is he's not angry in a lot of this movie. No, no. I don't see him as an angry character. No, I see him as no. frustrated, and he gets pissed when things go wrong. But he's mostly got a gleam in his eye, and he loves what he does. Yeah, yeah. And he loves the chase. Yeah. It, I definitely got the feeling that he loved being a detective in New York. That's all. He, it's, it's almost like Rollerball, where his entire personality yeah. is this job. You look at his it's apartment. True. It's just a scummy place. <laughs> he just picks up women. He's just a gross, awful man. <laughs> But he's a great cop, and I think that is what's so brilliant about this. We didn't see very much of this before this. Right. A guy who's so flawed and so unlikable, but because it's Gene Hackman, with an inherent likability, you're going to root for him, even though he's a piece of ass. Yeah. It's crazy. So the only thing that kept him from walking off the set was threat of legal action. Uh, This is most likely a tactic by Freakin, as Jim was saying, as Hackman had a hard time getting into the crouchy character of Popeye Doyle. Uh, Freakin employed various tactics in provoking Hackman into anger from the more gritty scenes during filming. Uh, One technique was to show dissatisfaction with Hackman by repeatedly sighing heavily and shaking his head after a take, (sighs) even when Hackman had delivered a great performance. Uh, That was awful. Uh, well, the trick almost worked too well as Hackman got so angry that he reportedly nearly quit on the second day of filming. <laughs> well, I would too, man. I would too. Yeah. I would too. I'm like, we're in this. We're we're in this together, man. We're making this as a team, and I, you are playing stupid tricks on me. Not to mention the fact that you know they all know we have very little money. Yeah, they all know we have very little time. Yep. Don't play games. Let's no. get this movie done. Trust your actor. This is this is the egoism of certain directors that drives yeah. me nuts. Yeah. Because they'll do whatever. Like, same thing with Kubrick. Kubrick is oh, a genius. But working for him must have been a nightmare. I would never be able to work with him. And same thing with Hitchcock. You know, he just saw actors as chattel. Yeah. Pieces it's like, of it's like, objects. Um, objects to be moved around props. the space. Yeah. Yes, props. 
It's like David Mamet. That was the the best the best when David Mamet was directing. I can't remember who it was. It might have been that movie, The Spanish Prisoner, with Steve yeah. Martin. But somebody was like, one of the actors was like, "Well, what's my motivation?" And he was like, "Do you see this square? Anything that happens out outside the square, I don't care. <laughs> you walk in, and then you are in that square, and you act, and then you walk out. Right? You say the dialogue exactly the way it's written. You <laughs> say it exactly the way I tell you to, and then that's what you do, and then you go home. <laughs> and they, it's like yeah, it was yeah. But I get Mamet. Yeah, because I mean Mamet, it's his words, and yeah. there's a yeah. definite case, there's a definite rhythm. Mammoth is like jazz. Yeah. I use that way too I use like that euphemism jazz. way too much. Like jazz. But literally it is like jazz because yeah. his there's such a rhythmic quality to his dialogue and especially the way that it bounces off of the, the you know, the two guys or three guys or however many guys are talking. Yeah. There's a certain rhythm and a certain beat that yeah. goes with yeah. it that if you don't hit it it doesn't it That's doesn't the, work. The Cohen brothers are the same way. Yeah. That was the 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 big famous story from Fargo with the the guy who plays the Swedish dude like was reading the script and he just kept correcting the di- and they were like what is something wrong? Is something wrong with the dialogue? Why aren't you saying it the way it's on the cuz the script was like uh the the, uh, the like all those ums and stuff yeah, yeah. It was all in the script. Nice. And he was correcting it and he was like, "Well, I thought it was a mistake." And they're like, "No. No. <laughs> Read it the way it is on the page." <laughs> well, yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, they cast Fernando Ray as Alan, Alain, Alain Frogwan Charnier. He was so great. Uh, yeah, he was so great in this. Uh, the casting of Fernando Ray resulted from mistaken identity. Really? Yeah. Uh, Freakin had seen Louis Buñuel's 1967 French film Belle de Jour and had been impressed by the performance of Francisco Rabal. Have you seen that movie? Who had a small role in the film. No, I have not. It's really good. Belle de Jour? Yeah. I like Buñuel quite a bit, so I don't know why I haven't seen it yet. It's the belle of the day. Oh, okay. <laughs> a woman of the day, a woman right? woman of the day? Yeah. yeah. Uh, however, Friedkin did not know his name uh, of Francisco Rabal, on- only remembered that he was a Spanish actor. He asked his casting director to find the actor, and the casting director instead contacted Ray, a Spanish actor who had appeared in several other films directed by Louis, Louis Buñuel. It's so weird that he got a Spanish guy to play a... A French dude? French guy. I know. Uh, I think he just really liked that actor, uh, Rabal. Oh, he was so good. Uh, after Rabal was finally reached, they discovered he spoke neither French nor English, and Ray was kept in the film. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so there you go. But well, Francisco for Ray, Fernando Ray was so good in this movie. Oh, that the whole – it's n- – almost 80% of this movie, there's no dialogue. Yeah. Not so just – There's so much just, Wandering and – Well, surveillance. And, yeah, yeah. And just it's so things. just the, – the, the surveillance scenes are brilliant. Because you finally see like real surveillance. There's usually like a three man team, yeah. So you can go on and off, and you know, right, so right. you don't trigger the guy. But the surveillance scene with Hackman and uh, Frog One, Frog One, <laughs> as they call them, <laughs> yes. Frog One, Frog Two, because uh, <laughs> so, he's French, right? Yes, I had to, of course. Can't, he, everything had to be a stereotype. Um, but that scene is so amazing because you watch, you know that. That Elaine knows that he's being followed. Oh, he yeah. doesn't give yeah. it off. And Hackman is so clumsy. He's too eager. Too, way too eager. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect at him, which makes him clumsy. Yeah. And there's this great scene on the subway where they just keep getting on and off and on and <laughs> off. So great. And and he and he gets the slip. Gives yeah. a slip to Popeye yeah. and his little wave. He does his little, little wave. wave. Goodbye, bye. It was just so brilliant, and he's just ruthless and so 
Well played by this actor. Oh, so good. Uh, Ray has appeared in more than 150 films. After screening the film's final cut, Ray's French was deemed unacceptable by the filmmakers. They decided to dub his French while preserving his English dialogue. Okay. Uh, yeah. The debonair Ray was described by French Connection producer Philip D'Antoni as... The last of the continental guys. I had to look that up because I wasn't really sure what a continental guy was. Uh, it, it just kind of means that you're very uh, European and very worldly. Well, I guess. it also means that you dress really nicely. Yeah, you've yeah. got a really cool like cigarette kind of case and a good high, lighter. And yeah, like you're very aware of, of your you know, presentation. Yes, you know which wines to have with which right, meats, and you right. know which cognacs to have after dinner, and you know which cigars are the best. You very mm-hmm. old school. Yes. Uh, he achieved his greatest fame after he turned fifty. Perhaps it is a pity that my success came so late in life. Might have been better to have been successful while young, like El Cordobes in the bullring. Then your life is all before you to enjoy it. He was 54 when he performed in the French Connection. Nice. Uh, oh, my God. Really? Yeah. He. <laughs> wow. He, he was 54. 54 was a lot older looking than it is now. I thought he was in his 70s. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like we were talking about this yesterday, too. Yeah. Like from 20 on, guys look like they're in their 40s oh, yeah. and 50s. But Gene Hackman, he was 40 for like 40 years. Same with Roy Scheider. I, bo- both of them. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it just was a thing back then. It's hard living, Everyone baby. just looked adult all <laughs> yes, the time. Because they were adults. They had to go through wars and stuff. Uh, unfortunately, Ray would pass from bladder cancer in 1994 at the age of 76. Ah. Yeah. He was really great in this movie, though. Oh, he uh, was amazing. And he did appear in the sequel. So, hey. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Uh, Roy Scheider was c- cast as Detective Buddy Cloudy Russo. You're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, it's really funny. I, I, so <clears throat> Scheider's character was also based on a real detective, Sonny Grosso. Yeah. His nickname was Cloudy because he was a grumpy Gus that did not <laughs> resemble his name, Sonny. Right. So when they changed the name from Sonny Grosso to Buddy Russo, the nickname makes no sense now. No. He's nobody's buddy. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what? Yeah. The chemistry between he and Hackman are it, it's so good, so man. amazing. I mean, the, the scene where he he comes into his apartment, so brilliant. Well, it's also kind of the first buddy cop, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, pairing where it's instead of like like you know things before that were dragnet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's great cops, and you know the partners yeah. are partners. Hey, yeah. Joe, what are you gonna do? I don't know, Mick. Let's go get the guy. Let's yeah. have a cup of coffee. Yeah, oh. or like the cop story and whatever. And it was it was never it was always just they were in the office and they were out solving crimes. They're in the, in the office out solving crimes. Yeah, but these guys from the beginning of that chase. When they go after the guy, and the guy slices Roy Scheider, yeah, and then yeah. they just kick the s out of this guy because he did that, yeah, yeah. I, you can see the bond between them. Oh yeah, and it's yeah. just one of those like <sighs> thrust together, very different right. guys. It right. seems because right. Roy Scheider seems a lot less high strung, yes, and impulsive. Yes. He seems a lot more level headed and like, <laughs> let's kind of let the case play out <laughs> rather than running and shooting. <laughs> <laughs> like Popeye Doyle is insane, but it works. They work so well together. And there's these long, long uh, surveillance scenes, like stakeout scenes, yeah, yeah, that really give you a sense of the boredom and what it's like to be on a stakeout. Yeah, yeah. you know, before it was all exciting, and the guys right. would be sitting there eating sandwiches, and then two minutes later they'd be like, "Oh, the chase, let's go." Yeah, but this is just guys. For days, sitting on oh, the car yeah. or whatever, yeah. and one guy's sleeping, and the other guy's like four in the morning, and let's yeah. get the hell out of here. And it was just done in a way. It didn't glorify or glamorize police work the no. way that all these other 
yeah. programs and movies did. It really showed just how tedious right. most police work is. Yeah, that, that, that iconic two-shot of the guys in the car, and then they toss their coffees out the window while they chase yes. the guy down. Like, that's not how it really works. No, you've got plenty of time to drink your coffee. Yeah. That's the funny thing, is that they implied in the movie at the end when they were staking out the car, after it had been parked, yeah. that it took about a, a day. Like, it was overnight that day. Yeah. In real life, that actually took three days. Really? They sat in that building and watched that car, or not in the building, they sat in their cars and watched that car for three days. Oh, stink City. Lots of farts. Can't imagine. Uh, Anyway. Uh, So Scheider started boxing at the age of 14 to lose weight. See, that's another reason why all these guys look weird, because they all boxed. Yeah, that's true. They all did, like, super manly crap when they were young. (laughs) None of this coddling, TikToking. No, no, none of this TikToking. You're going to box all these kids and they're TikToking. And you know what? We're not going to use gloves. (laughs) We're going to bare knuckle it. Here we go. Uh, his trainer encouraged him to compete despite Scheider having no desire to fight. I love him. Uh, this is almost, yeah, it's because it's like, no, I'm just doing it because it's good for me. Yeah, I just want to get in shape. Quit pushing me. Yeah. Uh, in his second fight, he suffered a broken nose and lost by TKO. Yeah, you can still see that broken nose yeah. today. Well, not <laughs> well, today. Not today. <laughs> but in the movies. In the movies, yes. yes. Despite this, he would go on to have an 11-1 record before stopping boxing when he graduated high school. Pretty impressive. That is very impressive. All before graduating he high school. could have gone on to be much more successful in boxing. Too smart. I mean, not yeah. to say that boxers aren't smart. No, but he had other, he had other things he wanted he to do. He had other opportunities. Yeah. He made his acting debut in The Curse of the Living Corpse in 1964. Nice. Uh, I've never seen that. Kind of want to watch it. Yeah. Uh, he would make numerous television appearances in soap operas and TV movies. Uh, he actually won an Obie Award for his part in Stephen D., a play by James Joyce, performing 68 times off-Broadway. Nice. In 1971, as well as appearing in The French Connection, he appeared in Alan J. Pakula's Clute with Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. Another movie we have to do because we talk about it every it, it, single time. It comes time. up a lot. Yes. It comes up a lot. Uh, the French Connection is what made him a star. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's such an amazing performance. And he's – talk about a likable guy. Oh, God. And, and yes. we were talking about this. His – one of his greatest gifts as an actor is how he makes the other actors yes. likable. Yes. He, we were talking about this yesterday, he made Richard Dreyfuss likable <laughs> in Jaws. In Jaws, he, he was not a likable character. Well, he's not a, but, I love Richard Dreyfuss, but Richard yeah. Dreyfuss is usually playing a nudge or yeah, somebody yes, that's like yes. annoying. A little annoying, yeah. And he's playing that in Jaws, but, oh, yeah, but yeah. he softens him because of the way their friendship, you know what I mean? It's same thing with Popeye Doyle. The, the the friendship that they have with Roy Scheider makes them more likable characters, yeah. if that makes sense. And I don't know any other actor that really does that in such a remarkable way. He he comes off as being so non-judgmental and accepting of just whoever it is he's talking to. So earnest that you and, that yeah. it's like you just you're just like, oh well, if if he likes the guy, then Give us a I kiss, probably darling. like the guy. Yeah. yeah. And he's just got this fun way of talking. And oh, he's so good. And he's just got this dry sense of humor that is just unparalleled. He is such an underrated actor. Yeah. One of the best that we had. And I just every time I saw him, and he was another one of these guys when I was a kid that I had the talent crush on. And anytime he was on anything, I would watch it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of really great movies. The Seven Ups, The French Connection, Jaws, uh the 2010 even yeah that was yeah. you know there was it was not a great movie but he was really good in it his audition for the french, french connection did not go well he actually stormed out of the audition convinced he had lost the part <laughs> it seems uh, like a pattern here uh Freakin was actually impressed with his anger and that was the reason he got cast 
Preakin likes angry men. <sighs> it's weird. I like making men mad. Uh, his first leading role was in The Seven Ups, where he played Sonny Grosso, again, a quasi-sequel to The French Connection. Yeah. Uh, which, really, it's not at all. It's just happened to have the same character. Yeah. Or same real person, quote-unquote. Uh, his role in Jaws in 1975 cemented his popularity. Twice he almost worked with Michael Cimino. Perfect Strangers was a romantic thriller that he shelved, that was shelved due to political machinations at Universal. Uh, Cimino offered him the part that Robert De Niro would play in The Deer Hunter. And Scheider accepted before having to drop out two weeks before filming began. I wonder why. I don't know. I couldn't find. I couldn't find any info. I, look, De Niro is insanely good in that. Oh yes, but yes. I, he would have been just as equally. Oh good, yeah, I yeah. Think. Scheider would have been fantastic. Uh, Universal had him in a three-picture deal that started with Jaws, and they told him if he would do Jaws two, they would consider the contract fulfilled. All right, I'll do it. So he did. Yeah, fine. Uh, in his later career, he would turn to TV, starring in the Steven Spielberg-produced Sequest DSV in 1993. Remember that show? Uh, yeah, oh yeah. During the second season, Scheider voiced disdain for the direction in which the series was heading. I don't like it. Uh, his comments were highly publicized, and the media criticized him for panning his own show. show sucks. <laughs> NBC made additional casting and writing changes in the third season, and Scheider decided to leave the show. I'm leaving. Uh, his contract, however, required that he make several guest appearances that season. Fine, I'll show up once or twice. <laughs> He's such an easygoing guy. <laughs> uh, Scheider guest starred in the Law & Order Criminal Intent episode, Endgame. Oh, baby! Uh, 100% you should watch this. I know you're not a Law & Order fan. I am not. But Criminal Intent was a, uh, was a very cool series. It had Vincent D'Onofrio, mm-hmm. and I forget the name of the actress, but she's really great, too. Vincent D'Onofrio was so good. It's a very – it didn't last very long, like two or three seasons. Yeah. But him coming on – because D'Onofrio's character is one of the greatest characters on TV. Just very complicated, so weird. Yeah. And the and you know that the, he was like, I'll only do it if I get to play it really weird. Um, <laughs> I but, don't think he can play anything but weird. But you see Roy Scheider yeah. playing his dad, the serial killer. Yeah. Oh, man. It was so good. It is worth watching just those episodes just to see his performance. All right. In 2004, Scheider was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a cancer affecting white blood cells. Uh, in 2000, June 2005, he received a bone marrow transplant to treat the cancer. Unfortunately, he died on February 10th, 2008 in Little Rock, Arkansas, at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences Hospital. Uh, his last part was playing himself on Family Guy, along with his Jaws co-star, Richard Dreyfuss. Yes, we did a little thing for the Family Guy. It's too bad, man. I I mean, he did, I don't know how much, I don't know how old he was when he, when he passed. It doesn't but, matter. Uh, he was just a treasure. He's, he's just, just, yeah. He's just yeah. one of those guys that was solid in everything he did. Yeah. He was low-key. You really didn't know much about him. You just knew he was a great actor. He just put his head down, did great work, didn't get in your face. He yeah. was just yeah. one of those old-school, awesome he artists. Was fantastic, yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't include this in the script due to time, but I do want to point out, I don't know some of their names, uh, but the supporting cast was great. Like the guy who tried to, to snipe him. Uh, the Frog 2 oh, yeah. uh, was great. Uh, he was great in the movie. And um, the the lady that plays uh, Sal Boca's wife. Oh, yeah. Uh, she was really great. And... Tony Lobianco. Tony Lobianco. Hey, Sal Boca. I'm Tony Lobianco. Tony you know me from such movies as The French Connection. <laughs> Every time he's on scream, screen, his face just screams, I'm Tony Lobianco. What are you doing? I'm Tony Lobianco. But he was great. Tony, I mean, he was great in this. Tony, Lo- <laughs> Tony Lobianco, whose name is so much fun to say. Try yeah. it at home. Yeah. Say Tony Lobianco. It just hey. rolls off your thing like a party. But uh, he was one of those guys. Like a party. <laughs> he was one of those guys that 
unfortunately for the time was like too Italian to be a leading yeah. man and yeah. Yeah. one of those great journeyman character actors uh, that just showed up in everything. Like, when we were talking, I'm like, oh, he was in The Godfather. Uh, he was in uh, Goodfellas. He wasn't yeah. in any of those. If, but if, if he wasn't, he should have been. Exactly. Because he had a face for it. And there was somebody that looked and sounded exactly <laughs> like him that was in it. But it's yeah. just that guy again. And again, not a lot of dialogue. No, no. But, but such an important part. And he really played it well. I mean, because he's the middleman yeah. between yeah. the French. Right. And the mob. Right. And he's trying to put together this deal that is a great deal. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the, for everybody. But the mob's dragging their feet because they're the mob. And, you know, the, yeah. the French, the Franchies are getting uh, impatient because it's taking too long. Right. And so he's losing his ass. Yeah. And it's just such a great layered performance. Just like all of the performances in this movie, there is so much more. There's no stereotypes. There's no – look, yeah. even in the bar – you got these guys that are the drug dealers or whatever, but yeah. they have nuance to them, to their characters, especially the guy that is either the – I don't know if he was a, a, a I, an undercover guy I've, or if it, he was an yeah. informant. It feels like he was undercover. Yeah. Because it was great. He came out and he's just like, hey, what's up, man? What's up, baby? What you doing, baby? <laughs> and he's just like, what? And then he gets him into the, the bathroom and it's like, oh, hey, he just what's up, peeing. Paul? Like, hey, what's <laughs> going on? Yeah, hey. Yeah, you know anything about this? No, yeah. I don't know anything about that. Yeah. Gonna, no, keep it near the ground. We'll All have right. dinner. Say hello to Margaret for <laughs> me. It was, it was, he was great, too. He was fantastic. Everybody was great. In this. Yes. I can't think of anybody that dropped the ball. Everyone felt so real. Yes. So real. And that goes along with the Cine Verite style, yeah. the documentary style of shooting. It just and and things got to play out. Yes, the the budgetary restrictions or whatever was going on, they really were able to just let these scenes simmer. Yeah, but not in a way that dragged the film no, down. No, it no, just made no. you feel like you were watching something that maybe you shouldn't be watching. Yeah, it was like watching a documentary unfold. Yeah, and it was like, yes. Where is this going to go? Totally felt like we were on a. a Stakeout with these yeah, guys. Yeah, we exactly. felt like we were part of the task force. Right. And we were getting, I mean, I would get so frustrated too with oh, Gene Hackman. The way, when Gene Hackman got frustrated, I got frustrated. Yeah, he did yeah. such a great job of just sucking the audience into this peril. Yeah. So to save money on the budget, Friedkin shot everything on location. It was filmed on 86 separate locations throughout New York City. Uh, because the movie is based on an actual case and had heavy involvement from the detectives involved in the case, the picture had a lot of help from the NYPD. Roy Scheider and Gene Hackman patrolled with Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso for a month to get the feel of the characters. That, might, that probably wasn't a lot of fun. No. Uh, Hackman became disgusted at the sights he saw during the patrol. In one incident, he had to help restrain a suspect in the squad car and later worried that he would be sued for impersonating a policeman. Yeah, he's like, what are you, I'm an actor. What do you got me doing over here? Eddie Egan didn't care. He was like, just hold him down. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, because they didn't always have permits, William Friedkin had the cameraman carted around a wheelchair instead of using a camera mounted on dolly tracks for the moving shots. Nice. Uh, this is most noticeable when Gene Hackman runs to then enters the subway car. Uh, as the camera follows Hackman hurrying towards the car, the film movement is smooth, but then shakes noticeably as the cameraman has to get up from the wheelchair and follow Hackman into the subway car. I totally noticed that you because did. of the script. You did. And I pointed it out to you. You did. It was great. Uh, cameras and equipment would often freeze during shooting due to the frigid temperatures during the winter shooting in New York City and Brooklyn. Yep. Winter is not a friend of the film camera. No, it is not. Uh, it averaged five degrees during shooting. Ugh. A whole five degrees. Well, it's like, what's worse? Shooting in five degrees or 105 degrees of 100% humidity? 
the latter, definitely. Really? I would rather shoot in cold weather. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yes. That would I be would, the former, wouldn't it? You said which was worse. Right. The latter would be worse. Right. <laughs> Shooting in the heat and humidity would be worse. Yes. Uh, the former would be great. I would totally be down for that. Just put on a jacket. I Yeah. And plus, he's running around. He was running so much. It didn't matter. But know? those shots, too. The, the great, that scene where he's, again, like 40% of this movie is tailing guys. Yeah. And when Hackman's tailing the Frog 1 and Frog 2. Yeah. And they go to lunch. And it juxtaposed. <laughs> Of them having this elegant five-course meal yeah. with wine and cognac and desserts. And Hackman's out there freezing his, you know, he's rubbing his hands together, stomping his feet, freezing to death, eating a gross piece of pizza and, the and cold coffee. Nickel coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was just such a just great. drink three sips of them dumped out because it's exactly. just disgusting. Just showed. And then they got their cappuccino. Oh, yeah. Oh, it just, it was such a great. Just it's such a great movie. I it it, it, it was so cold. Uh, I didn't. I don't. I didn't include this in the script. But during shooting, when they were in between takes, the uh, the crew would hide out in like storefronts. Oh wow! Because they were like, it's too cold, oh, and, yeah. and go wander in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the scene where Weinstock's chemist tests the heroin's purity uses actual heroin and not flour or cornstarch or some other commonly used substitute. How they did? How they get that? How they let? They didn't have permits. I don't know. Hey. How, did, how did anybody get any heroin? I, well, they were working with cops. Hey, Can you go into the... Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure the Eddie, evidence room. Eddie Egan was like, yeah, I can get you some heroin. You guys need heroin? Yeah. I can get you heroin. Ah, the teeth on that heroin tester was oh, disgusting. That guy was so gross. So gross. So black. Gross. Literally black rotting teeth. He did black. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was the be- that was the great. Yeah, and you can keep that one for yourself. And he grabs the giant <laughs> thing, the, the small one. <laughs> okay. Uh, the film features one of the greatest car chase sequences in movie history. Oh, man. Uh, the chase involves Popeye commandeering a civilian's car in 1971 Pontiac Le Mans and then frantically chasing an elevated train on which a hitman is trying to escape. The scene was filmed in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, roughly running under the BMT West End line, which runs on an elevated track above Stillwell Avenue, 86th Street, and New Utrecht Avenue in Brooklyn, with the chase ending just north of the 62nd Street station. Go visit all them right now. It's where they shot it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. At that point, the train hits a train stop, but is going too fast to stop in time and collides with the train ahead of it, which has just left the station. Now, this, the reason why this car chase was so incredible, because it was super unsafe, and it wasn't yeah. really... That planned out. And there were accidents that were real accidents. Yeah. Uh, the car chase was filmed without obtaining the proper permits from the city. Friedkin went for approval to the New York Transit Authority. He laid out exactly what he needed, and the TA employee, some sources say it was the conductor, responded that, uh, To approve this, I'll need $40,000 and a one-way ticket to Jamaica. When asked why one way, he replied, <laughs> Because, Mr. Friedkin, <laughs> when your picture comes out, I'm going to get fired. Uh, so the producers and Friedkin complied with the man's request. Nice. Uh, the scene ended up becoming one of the most notoriously dangerous ever filmed, after which the TA employee was promptly fired for negligence. <laughs> well, he had 40 grand. And 40, he, he wouldn't make it 40 grand a year. His current whereabouts are unknown, so he made the right choice. Oh, I'm in Jamaica. Uh, you know what? Jamaican me crazy. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Jamaica. Um, Members of the NYPD's tactical force helped control craft traffic, but most of the control was achieved by the assistant directors with the help of off-duty NYPD officers. Oh, that one shot when he almost hits the baby carriage? Yeah. That is just, it's so frightening. The whole oh. thing is so frightening. He, it, the, the, it comes up, you get a close-up of the baby, and then they do the reverse side. And he hits that garbage so fast. 
Oh man, and it's just that me 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 just the it's just so harrowing. The whole thing is just it's anxiety inducing. Yeah. Uh many of the NYPD officers who helped were involved in the actual case. The assistant directors under the supervision of Terrence A. Donnelly cleared traffic for approximately five blocks in each direction. Wow. Permission was given to literally control the traffic signals on the streets where they ran the chase car. That's crazy. And that's such a busy part of New York. Yeah. Uh, even so, in many instances, they illegally continued the chase into sections with no traffic control. They actually had to evade real traffic and pedestrians. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Just glad no one got killed. <laughs> yeah. It's... Uh... Uh, Hackman did some of the driving, as was very apparent. With uh, they had way more of Hackman driving than I realized, because I thought it was a lot of like far shots. Yeah, but it was not. There was a lot of obvious Hackman driving. Uh, I'm shot from behind. Yeah, well, there was stuff of his face. Right, like, right. Uh, yeah, but I'm sure that was mostly in the controlled areas. Sure, sure, of course. Uh, the extremely dangerous stunts were performed by Bill Hickman, who played the FBI agent Mulderig, uh, with Friedkin filming from the back seat. Uh, Hickman was an experienced stuntman and driver. Also, really good at playing an a-hole. Oh, my God. <laughs> so good at playing And it's an so a-hole. effed up what happened at the end to I him. know, I know. Well, I'll, I'll get to that. It's, it's funny, because that did not actually happen in real life. Well, good. Because <laughs> uh, you would have heard about that. Yeah. Uh, Freakin operated the camera himself because the other camera operators were married with children, and he was not. Nice. Yeah. The most famous... Well, you got to do that. You got to... You, you have to lead by example. Oh, no. That totally. Totally. That was the right choice. It was like, all right, man, in case we get in an accident, your kid's still have a responsible. Yeah. 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 The most famous shot of the chase is made from the front bumper mount and shows a low angle point of view of the shot of the streets racing. Director of photography Owen Roisman had the camera undercranked to 18 frames per second to enhance the sense of speed. Uh, this effect can be seen on a car at a red light whose exhaust pipe is pumping smoke at an accelerated rate. Yeah, I saw that. It's not super distracting, though. No, I didn't. It, to me, honestly, it seemed fine. What's funny is I read your script before we watched the movie, so I was looking for all of these things that you had pointed right. out, and right. it was fun to see them. Nice. So if you're all going to watch the movie, <laughs> look for these things that Adam talks about because they're fun to Fun to look out for. Uh, other shots involve stunt drivers who were supposed to barely miss hitting the speeding car, but due to errors in timing, accidental collisions occurred and were left in the final film. Yeah, that car was effed up by the time he stopped. That poor oh guy, my too. God. When am I going to get my car back? Yeah, I know. Never. I was like, he didn't even, I would have like yelled at him, call the cops, and, uh, you know, or whatever. I, yeah, this whole thing. And that's not a thing, too, by the way. Cops you can't, can't commandeer your no. car. Too many people think that's a thing. It's, it's not. not. If any cop tries to commandeer your car, just say no. And not to mention the fact that at the end, he gets out, and he shoots him, and then and then it, Doyle was so f- messed up that he just lays down. It's like, yeah, the uh, adrenaline from that. Uh, I'm so hurt and tired now. He just, yeah, he was so spent from the adrenaline Such of doing that. a real reaction. Exactly. It's just, because that's what's so beautiful about it. A- he shoots the guy in the back, which is totally effed up. Yeah. And B, he just, you know, he didn't have like, you know, time to, don't turn your back on me or whatever his stupid catchphrase no, would be in no, the movie today, yeah, you know. Yeah. And he would just be fine, grab a girl and kiss her or something. Right. If it was, you know, the Hollywood movie. Uh, Freakin said that he used Santana's cover of Peter Green's song Black Magic Woman during editing to help shape the chase sequence, though the song does not appear in the film. Ah. Uh. So it makes sense. I mean, he cut to the song. You know. Well, it's always great to cut to music. Yeah. The scene concludes with Doyle confronting Nicoli, the hitman, at the stairs leading to the subway and shooting him as he tries to run back up them. Its climax captured as a still shot in the theatrical release movie poster for the film. The great, which I don't remember. I guess they did show him. The, but anyway, it just the shot in the back. The blood they used was just so 
thick and red. No, it's total peck and pop blood for everything. It's the '70s kind of peck and pop blood, which is very thick and very red. It's like a, it's almost like a uh, pasta sauce. Yeah, it's so they just bleach. It's just yeah. Uh, many of the police officers acting as advisors for the film objected to the scene on the grounds that shooting a suspect in the back was simply murder, not self-defense. But director Friedkin stood by it, stating that he was... Securing my conviction that that's exactly what Eddie Egan would have done, and Eddie was on the set while all of this was being shot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would have shot him in the back. Eddie Egan was a murderer. <laughs> I would have shot him in the back. Yeah. Uh, cops on set also objected to the accidental shooting of the FBI agent depicted in the movie. Oh, that was brutal. Oh, my God. He shot him like six times. And didn't give an F. Just he reloaded just like, his gun. Is like, I'm going to go after him. And Roy Scheider is just aghast. Aghast. Okay. Yeah. Like, you just killed an FBI agent. Just murdered an FBI agent. Do you want to take a breath? No. 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 I got to catch He's in guy. here. He's in here. I know he's in here. Uh, however, Eddie Egan agreed to it because he hated the FBI agent that the character was based on. That's hilarious. Yeah. Having participated in the making of the movie, Detective Eddie Egan decided to retire from the NYPD and start a career in Hollywood. I'm starting to think Eddie Egan wasn't a very likable guy. (laughs) (laughs) The NYPD, however, brought charges against him for minor errors in reporting and handling of evidence. Okay, sounds a little petty. And Yeah. And the NYPD to being petty? (laughs) There was a lot of corruption, too, back then. I know. In Egan's trial, director William Friedkin testified on his behalf, and Roy Scheider was also present. Uh, Egan was dismissed from the police force just hours before his retirement, and his pension was taken away. That's petty. That's some Trump-level crap, like he did to Comey or whoever they did that to. Well, the decision was later appealed in court and was reversed. Good, because that's just effed up. That's just messed. Literally hours away from retiring. And it was Andrew McCabe that they did it to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the location of the bar where Doyle makes the milkshake is now a Popeye's chicken fast food restaurant founded by Arthur Copeland, who named the chain after Popeye Doyle. Yeah, the milkshake was uppers, downers, bennies, and <laughs> weed, and coke, and heroin. Yeah. Might have been good. I had no idea that Popeye's chicken was named after the character in this movie. I didn't either. I had no idea. I didn't. Uh, the movie was the first to film the World Trade Center, as it was under construction during filming. No. Uh, Don Ellis composed the score for the film. It was the first film score. Only 22 minutes of the score were used during the entirety of the film. Which is good, because the film score is unpleasant. It's not like a soundtrack that you would listen to ever. Uh, no. No, not one that I... Maybe as an alarm in the morning. Maybe. <laughs> so get up and turn it off. If you're going to murder somebody yeah. or do something it's just maniacal it's a maniacal soundtrack the movie would go on to make over 75 million dollars in worldwide box office it was the third highest grossing movie of the year uh roger ebert of the chicago sun times gave the film four out of four stars and ranked it as one of the best films of 1971 nice yeah gene siskel of the chicago tribune awarded a full four stars out of four and raved from the moment a street corner santa claus chases a drug pusher through the bedford stuyvesant section of brooklyn to the final shootout on deserted wards island the french connection is a gritty is a gutty flat-out thriller far superior to any caper film of recent vintage Still so in love with his words. Yes, but uh, but he's right. Agreed. Yes, he's right. I, uh, Pauline Kale of New Yorker was generally negative, writing, It's not what I want. Not because it fails, it doesn't fail, but because of what it is. It is, I think, what we once feared mass entertainment might become. Jolts for jocks. There's nothing in the movie that you enjoy thinking about afterward. Nothing. 
especially clever, except the timing of the subway door and the umbrella sequence, every other effect of the movie, even the climactic car versus runaway elevated train chase, is achieved by noise, speed, and brutality. So she got the movie. She just didn't like it. Like the movie. No. Yeah. Yeah. It scared her, Adam. It scared her. (laughs) God forbid that things be real. These things actually happen. It elicited a response from her. It did. It might not have been the one that she wanted, but it was effective. The Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa cited The French Connection as one of his favorite films. Of course, because the guy's a genius. (laughs) (laughs) Director David Fincher cited The French Connection as one of the five films that... Had a profound impact on my life. And served as an important influence on the cinematography of his film Seven. Oh, it's... Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Because Seven was definitely not cinema verite. No, but there was there were definitely like some of the cop the shootout yeah. like when he and he gets when he gets hit with the bar and stuff like some of that I could definitely feel the French connection. Well, it had it it was kind of a spiritual successor in a way because it did have the gritty cop yeah. realism. Yeah. There wasn't any sort of romanticizing of either the police officers no. or the job or the case. It had that I it had that definite French connection realism to it. It, it. it felt cinema verite without being cinema verite. Right. But yeah. also very stylized. Yes. And, yes. Oh, God, I want to watch that movie again. Oh, my God. I love that movie so much. Yeah. I've seen it, it like is a thousand times. so messed up, but it's so brilliant. Uh, the movie would be nominated for eight Academy Awards. Yeah. It would win five of them. Uh, it would win Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Gene Hackman, uh, Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium for Ernest Tidyman, and Best Film Editing. Nice. Uh, well, it definitely deserved best editing. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. It's, if you're a film editor or if you're any sort of editor and you haven't seen this oh. movie, do yourself a favor. Yes. It is brilliant. There's a, nothing like it. It has a rhythm and breathes. You can feel it yeah, as it, it goes. Yeah. It 100%. You're exactly right. It has a rhythm and a life unto its own. Mm-hmm. And it drives and moves and it is cut so well. It's so effective. It was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Roy Scheider, who unfortunately lost to Ben Johnson for The Last Picture Show. He was great in The Last Picture Show. Uh, Best Cinematography for Owen Roisman, losing to Fiddler on the Roof. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. (laughs) Like, Fiddler on the Roof is a great movie, fine. But that cinematography, they almost died making that. It was so innovative. It was like nothing that anybody had seen in an American film before. It definitely should have won. Those crusty old (laughs) Academy members are dummies. Uh, it also was nominated for Best Sound, losing again to Fiddler on the Roof. If I was a rich man, I've literally never seen Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, I have. Uh, the film be nominated for 25 other awards. Uh, the Seven Ups was a quasi-sequel to the film directed by Philip D'Antoni, starring Roy Scheider. It was a good, it's a fun little thriller, but it's nowhere near as I've it. never seen it. I'm curious to see it now, because I love Roy Scheider, and, and Philip D'Antoni, I don't know if he's a good director or not, but... Makes you want to drink 7-Ups. Yeah. <laughs> a sequel was made in 1975, The French Connection 2. Uh, it ignores the implication that Popeye Doyle killed Charnier at the end of the first film, uh, which is kind of for debate. I mean, But it's not, because at the end of the movie, they say he got away. That's true. I mean, there are words. So then what was he ran into the room and saw he got away, so he just shot the gun in the air? Probably. <laughs> I mean, I... But it's, you know... If they wouldn't have had the text crawl at the end, yeah, then it. Which I, I agree. I think is I telling the real story of what happened. Yes, as yes. opposed to yeah. the movie. But still, it implies that, that that's what happened away. in the movie, yeah. and then he got away. Yeah. yeah, I don't think there's much debate to that. No, I agree. I agree. 
Uh, in the sequel, Doyle travels to Marseille, France, where he is attempting to track down French drug dealer Alan Charnier, played by Fernando Ray again, who escaped at the end of the first film. Yeah, it's like Rocky II, because he lost in the first one and he gets to win in the second. Uh, Hackman and Ray are the only returning cast members, uh, but the film did not capture the same magic that the first film did. No, it's lighting in a bottle. You can't do no. what you did. There was, I, so I read, I've never seen The French Connection 2, but I read the plot for it, and apparently there's some really, really rough scenes where they force him to be addicted to heroin and then withdrawal scenes that I was like, where did this movie go? Yeah, I remember, I vaguely, vaguely remember it. I know I saw it, but. But yeah. he definitely very much kills him at the end. Well. It is, it is 100% definite that he kills yeah. him at the end. He puts a, a tank of oxygen in his mouth and says, smile, you <laughs> son of a, and uh, there was also a TV movie sequel made in 1986, Popeye Doyle, starring Ed O'Neill. It's good. Um, it's not great, but it's fun to see Ed O'Neill playing Popeye Doyle. He was good at that yeah, part. Yeah, I, I imagine he would be. Ed O'Neill is another one of those amazing actors who's super underrated because yeah. he got, everybody just sees him as Al Bundy. I know, I know. It's such a, it's such a tragedy because he is such an amazing actor. He's a fantastic and he actor. He was amazing as Al Bundy, but Al Bundy oh, yeah. is such a, I never really... Like that show? It wasn't. It wasn't a stretch. Like it was, just it was stupid. It was such a dumb show. It was just a dumb show. I yes. want to like go back and see if there's any nostalgia or anything good to it, but it just was so mean and dumb. It, yeah, it was. A, hey, it was weird. Hey, big. Mm. I'm gonna talk about how I want to not have sex with you, big. <laughs> I'm a shoe guy. <laughs> uh, it's really funny because we were we're watching. Well, Phoebe's watching for the first time, but Modern Family, and oh, yeah. it's amazing how every time I'm like, oh, this season I really like his relationship with Manny, or like I really like his relationship with one of the kids. Like it's he's just so good. He deserved every Emmy. Oh, it's one of the greatest sitcom performances ever. It's such a layered his his arc from the beginning of that series to the end of that series is so good, so good. and it deals. With the, you know, old school berm, boom, bermer. Bermer. <laughs> it deals with the old school boomer. Yeah. You know, with the gay son in such a realistic way where it, yeah. It, yeah. It, it doesn't let him off the hook. I mean, it, right. He has right. homophobia, you yeah. know, and it's, and they play it for laughs, but not in a degrading way. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a very human way and a very real way. And the way he comes around, you know, to the fact that he you know ends up giving right. his son away at the right, wedding right. at the end. It's beautiful. It's, yeah. it's beautiful. And his any other actor, it would have been difficult to still like him, right? During that journey, right, right. But because Ed O'Neill is just so such an incredible actor and oh, so, so good, genuinely likable, yeah, he plays. Mad and grumpy so well. Yeah, he oh, does. He's so good. He does. So, so good. <laughs> he's so good. Uh, so the 1986 TV movie sequel was originally intended as a pilot episode for a series called Popeye Doyle, but the series was not picked up. Yeah. Uh, it portrays the investigation of the case of a murdered model, which leads Popeye Doyle on the trail of a gang of terrorists and a drug cartel of international smugglers. Of course it does. Yeah. The French Connection has been issued in a number of home video formats. On September 25th, 2001, the film was released on VHS and DVD, with both formats being released in a box set featuring both the film and its sequel. For a 2009 reissue on Blu-ray, William Friedkin controversially altered the film's color timing to give it a colder look. Uh-oh. Cinematographer Owen Roisman, who was not consulted about the changes, dismissed the new transfer as... Atrocious! 
On March 18th, 2012, just three years later, a new Blu-ray transfer of the movie was released. The time, this time, the color timing was supervised by both Friedkin and Roysman, and the desaturated, sometimes overgrainy look of the 2009 edition had been corrected. Good. Yeah. In June 2023, media publications discovered that a version of the film available on digital platforms such as Apple TV and the Criterion Channel had been altered to excise a scene in the film that contains usage of racial slurs. I am so surprised that the Criterion Channel would do something like that because it is they a are, film preservation. They, I have films of theirs on DVD and Blu-ray where it has things at the beginning yeah. saying this was a product of its time. Exactly. Accept it. And watch the movie for what it was. It is really important not to sanitize these films. It is really important not to take this stuff out because this film is a reflection of society of its time. Yeah. And uh, so much like we were talking about 70 sci-fi and how it really reflected the changing times and the, and the changing attitudes. And it really explored all of the social consciousness of the yeah, time. Yeah. You need this stuff in there. I know it's uncomfortable and it may not be politically correct now, but we don't go changing art, you know? No, no. It'd be like, you know, it's like, yeah. Oh, let's cover up the wieners on these paintings because they make me uncomfortable. Well, there are plenty of people that want to do that. I know. I well, just, uh, the nice thing is the backlash to this has been most people, 99% of the people have been like, what are you doing? Like, it, it, we understand that it's not appropriate right now, no. but let us be adults and understand that. It's the same thing of sanitizing Mark Twain or sanitizing yeah. Yeah. Y y any of these, uh, anything, books, music. It is a reflection of its time. And yeah, some of the language is uncomfortable, but we can deal with it. Understand the context. It, understand that what it was. And these guys aren't PC... Dudes, no. they're no. cops. They're, they're, for all intents and purposes, they're kind of crooked cops. Yeah. But not in terms of taking bribes to look the other way. Right. They bend the rules to get the bad guys. Right. Which, you know, right. is not right either. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, you got to. Right. You got to keep it on the straight and narrow. Film, television, literature, it's the mirror that we put up to society. Yep. Yeah. And it is the, it is the, the record of history that most people yeah. Uh, subscribe to. Yeah. You know, not a lot of people reading history books and, and you right. know, and uh, exposés on the Civil War and such. Right. They're watching right. movies or TV or listening it's, to music. It's or reading, you know. really interesting because this is all going to circle back around when we get to Mississippi Burning at yeah. the end of the month. Yeah. Because there was a lot of this very similar, like, critiques and stuff of that movie. Um, but if you take out... The brutality and the inhumanity, then you're doing a disservice to yeah. the people that were victimized. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And nobody's going to look at the French Connection and be like, wow, Popeye Doyle was a great cop. No. They're going to be like, Popeye Doyle was an obsessed man. Right. Who was a dog with a bone and would do anything yeah. to get his man. And a lot of what he did was illegal, immoral. Yeah. And, and you know, in today's... Society, all the convictions would be overturned because of the way he got. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, none of this would stand no. today. No. 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 Uh, well, that's all I got. Uh, it's a great movie. Highly recommend it. Find it. Watch it. It really is. And if you're not familiar with Gene Hackman, then how dare you? Uh, this uh, is a great yeah. introduction into he as an as a artist. Uh, and definitely see Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. You know, definitely see uh, his earlier stuff. Um, 
Loose, the, loose cannons. <laughs> definitely see loose cannons and listen to yeah. our show. Yeah, he was great in loose cannons. He's the the guy, the guy doesn't. It never gives a bad performance. No, exactly. Maybe in some bad movies, but he's never given a bad performance. And again, he's another character actor that was made a leading man. Yeah. And some of his best work is the supporting roles. Yeah. Whether it's Mr. Luthor. Oh yeah. From Superman. Or Unforgiven, or, or Bonnie and Clyde. The Birdcage. Or The Birdcage. He's so good in The Birdcage. Yeah. Look, it's a brilliant... He's a... Look, he is one of our treasures. And he's yeah. still alive. Yeah. 90-something years old. Still riding his still bike kicking and doing around. his thing. Uh, Working in his garden. I miss him. I miss his presence. He's one of those actors that there's never going to be another Gene Hackman. Yeah. There's no. never anybody that's... He's like Harrison Ford or... Uh, John Wayne. Even if you know you hate him, <laughs> yeah, 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 but yeah, he's yeah. iconic. He, yeah, he, yeah, he's 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 a a, a one of a kind. He's not the best looking guy. No, he's no. not the most in shape guy. I just love the the shot of him chubby body with <laughs> handcuffed to the thing when he brought. He was just a perv and a gross guy. But he plays <laughs> anything. He even you know because in the birdcage he, he he was pretty unlikable at the yeah. beginning. But but even horrible characters like there was a uh, it's not a great movie. But there's a uh, there's a Clint Eastwood movie called Absolute Power. Yeah. Oh yeah. Where he plays the president, I yeah. believe, who murders a woman. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, Clint Eastwood. A, he's a thief. A, oh, it's a thief. He's That's a thief right. who okay. watches. He's breaking in. To, right. And. And in a happen. secret room, watches the murder oh, happen. Oh, and it's a, and oh. yeah, and it's a, it's not the best Clint Eastwood movie ever, but it's definitely worth a watch because those two together oh. are magic. And and him as a bad guy, I really love loved watching Gene Hackman play bad guys because they were always so interesting. Yeah, uh, Little Bill is that wasn't that who he was in. Uh, in Unforgiven. Oh, I don't, I don't know his name. It was something Bill, but the whole thing of him trying to build his house and he was horrible at it. <laughs> he was building this crap house. It was just, you're not going to find anybody like him. And if you ever are just watching TV or flipping through Pluto TV or mm-hmm. whatever, and you see a Gene Hackman movie come on, just stop. Yeah, just watch it. Yeah, you're going to have a great time. Yeah, it's going to be good. We'll be back next week. Uh, gonna, oh, this is going to All three movies this month are amazing. Yeah. But I love yeah. The Conversation. The Conversation is, is it's one of Coppola's best films. It is such a, a, a perfect, uh, it's just a perfect exploration of paranoia. Yeah. yeah. And what it's like to be somebody who's so good at surveillance yeah. that you lose your mind because you think you're being surveilled. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we're going to talk it's about gonna it. It's going to be so great. Such a great movie. So watch yourself a little bit of uh, French, con- French Connection. French Connection. Because uh, it's an awesome movie. And I think, you know what? I would say an interesting double feature would be French Connection and Seven. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It'd be a heavy night. Yeah, it would be a lot. Get yourself something to drink. Drink some whiskey and bourbon (laughs) while you're watching those two. But get yourself a double feature of those. You'll love it. We'll be back next week. Police procedural. Yeah. A police procedural, right? (laughs) Good Lord. Um, Legel Cordobas. What? It was a bullfighter. Legel Cordobas.
Uh, Cordobas? Cordobes? Cordobes. Miguel Cordobes in the building. Boring. In the boring. Oh, sorry. God damn, I need my glasses. Like El Cordo... Jesus Christ. Like El... Thanks, now we have blooper. <coughs> like El Cordobre... Cordo... Cordobes. Cordobes. Like El Cordobes in the bullring. Then your life is all before... God damn. Life is all before you to enjoy it. Okay, thank yeah. you. Like El Cord... Like El Cordobes in the bill... <laughs> in the bill, bill ring. Motherfucker. <clears throat> like El Cordobes. Cordobes? Like El Cordobes in the bullring. Then your life is all before you to enjoy it. <laughs> We now return you to your regularly scheduled program, Remington Steel, already in progress. 